This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Pulling Rocky out of a red hat. Latest HPC market numbers from Intersect 360. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research, joined again by Tiffany Trader from HPC Wire. Tiffany, This Week in HPC, number one story we've got to talk about is a new version of Linux called Rocky Linux, which is going to be a replacement for the... Uh, what do we say, deprecated support of CentOS by Red Hat. That's right. The Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation, RESF, announced the general availability of Rocky Linux release 8.4. And uh, this GA release is launching just six and a half months after Red Hat changed its support for CentOS, transferring to an upstream build called CentOS Stream, uh, essentially because... It was uh, eroding their their Red Hat Enterprise Linux business. So going forward, just to set the stage for this, going forward, CentOS 8 will be end of life at the end of this year, and CentOS 7 will be end of life June 30th, 2014. Yeah, this is really going to shake up the HPC industry. CentOS is popular as a platform within HPC, and uh, and we can get to that in a second. But these changes in the support of CentOS by Red Hat, which is, of course, in the business to make money off of free software, uh, they, they weren't going to continue CentOS in the same way. And it took mere moments, it seemed, before Greg Kurtzer, who's well-known in our industry, uh, both as the inventor of Werewolf and uh, more recently Singularity Containers, jumped on it and and really got the open source effort in the uh, RESF, Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation, to uh, to do this. I don't know if we can say a clone of CentOS as uh, as Rocky Linux. It's certainly starting off as very similar. That's right. It's meant to be a clone for CentOS. It's designed to be bug for bug compatible with CentOS and, you know, to fill the gap left by essentially the loss of a, the stable free CentOS um, distro. And to your point, yeah, Greg, Greg, Gregory Kurtzer, he put out a notice to the community the very day the Red Hat announcement was made. And then the very next day, Rocky Linux was launched. And he, he told us that um, he... Uh, was surprised by Red Hat's announcement at the time, but nonetheless, he uh, starting the the CentOS alternative was something he'd been thinking about since Red Hat acquired it in 2014, and and you know that's 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 why he was ready to go with this uh, right out the gate. Now let's talk about the popularity of CentOS. We haven't measured this in some time at Intersect 360 Research because generally. Uh, operating systems are, are pretty stable. We don't need to, to redo that every year. Last time we looked at it in 2018, CentOS was the platform of choice at 39% of the sites running Linux. Now there are a couple of percent that don't run uh, that run something other than Linux, but you know Linux is 97% of the market. Then 39% of those were 
running CentOS 29% were running Red Hat Enterprise Linux was the uh, second most common. When I first looked at it, I really thought that CentOS was going to be more common among the the free academic and uh, an open research lab and less common in commercial. But that actually wasn't the case. It was about the same percentages across government, commercial, academic markets. The only th segmentation where it really changed very much was when you went into Europe, there were a few more bumps in the, in the uh, SUSE Linux as more affinity to Europe than uh, uh, than it does in, in other geographies. But really CentOS, the most popular version of, of Linux for HPC, uh, what have you seen from your side? Yeah, to, to your points, Addison, you can see this popularity across a number of dimensions, including at the high highest end of supercomputing, uh, the going by the top, uh, the November top 500 list, CentOS was used in at least 109 systems. It listed CentOS as their operating system. So that's a fifth, obviously over a fifth of the list. And it's probably higher than that uh, since a lot of the installations, they don't, uh, they just list Linux. They don't, they don't say what flavor. Uh, and then some other metrics that speak to this, you know, was how quickly the, the, um, the Rocky Linux development project gained traction when it was announced in December. Over 650 contributors joined in less than 24 hours to the, the uh, to the effort, and then the Slack, the the initial Slack that they had uh, channel, uh, ballooned to about 10,000 people in in just a month. Um, Greg, Greg Greg told us that the the harder problem to solve was quote, not building the operating system, but building the infrastructure to build the operating system. Um, and then he revealed it took uh, took to, to four months to get the infrastructure and the organization all hammered out and just two months to, two months to build the operating system, which bootstraps, uh, forks off of CentOS. Essentially, it uses the same sources as Red Hat, Linux, Red Hat Enterprise Linux uh, leveraging CentOS Stream. Now, I mentioned that uh, there was a lot of commercial usage of uh, CentOS as well. And, you know, that implies that people do want there to be commercial support. And of course, there were organizations that had commercial support of CentOS. And there's going to be commercial support of Rocky Linux as well. And Greg has been uh, involved in that too. Kurtzer uh, founded was then known as Control IQ is now called CIQ. So he's right in the middle of this and uh, CIQ is, is going to be doing commercial support of Rocky Linux as well. Yep. Yep. So yeah, paid paid commercial support is available through through his company CIQ, which he founded last year. Uh, that company is is now leveraging Rocky, which actually didn't exist yet when he when he did when he founded it. So that's interesting um, synchronicity for him. Uh, so it'll be leveraging leveraging Rocky and other tools to build what he calls a cloud native, cloud hybrid, federated, a meta orchestration platform. Packing in some some buzzwords there, and he is the the CEO of CIQ as well as the founder and executive director of Rocky Linux. And you know we should mention that the the uh, the name the name of this project Rocky Linux is uh, is actually um, in tribute to the late uh, late CentOS co-founder uh, Rocky McGaw. 
what it really reminds me of is just how cyclical some of the things are with regard to all kinds of technology, in this case, open source and, and, and Unix-based uh, operating systems. I remember when we had two primary versions of Unix. There was AT&T System 5 and there was uh, the, the Berkeley uh, uh, Unix. And then eventually you had a lot of really commercial versions of uh, AT&T System 5 from uh, HPUX to Solaris and a bunch of others. And there was kind of a free Berkeley, free BSD Unix distribution. And eventually when uh, that was starting to diverge, Linux gained popularity as, as the new free alternative under uh, GNU licensing, which famously stood for GNU's not Unix. And, and now here we come back around to two different main commercial versions of Linux, and then here's this free version, and then the support getting deprecated. Now we need a new free version. It just it reminds me of things that we saw 25 years ago. Those are good points, Addison. We should also mention that free community support for Rocky Linux is available through the RESF and through channels like Mattermost, IRC, and on the Rocky Linux site forums as well. And, you know, they're also doing some efforts here that are expressly for HPC. There's an HPC SIG special interest group that's being formed to address the needs of high-performance computing. Uh, the community, it will it will bring in different software, MPI, Slurm, Torque, and so forth. And there's discussion about leveraging uh, or directly integrating with OpenHPC as well. And then they expect other SIGs may form too to, to focus on other verticals, uh, EDA and hyperscale. And speaking of hyperscale, uh, there's, there's strong interest from... The, the, the cloud vendors, Amazon, Google, and some other uh, companies and a hardware company are backing the project. And uh, Kurtzer had said at one point that he, he expects all three cloud providers uh, to be involved in this. So you get, you get sort of a neutrality and independence because everyone um, has to, uh, to work together. So no, no one, one um, company can steal the show. And, you know, uh, once again, we see, these the hyperscalers, you know, having having some influence here, and um, we'll be able to be setting some of the the technical directions um, for high end computing. Definitely an interesting story, and something we're going to have to keep tracking as analysts. As luck would have it, we're getting ready to do another major software survey in HPC anyway, so we'll be able to start getting a sense of end user views of the new Rocky Linux. So segueing into our second story, Addison, you recently delivered your 2020 market size and forecast in a in a free webinar. Uh, let's talk about the high points from that. You have the worldwide HPC market finishing 2020 at uh, 38.9 billion in revenue. How does that compare to uh, previous years and previous projections? This was actually our first decline in the HPC market since 2009 when there was a recession, and that's specifically due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, it wasn't as bad as we thought. We had projected a 3.7% loss year over year in our pandemic-adjusted forecast in July of last year, a year ago, as the pandemic was starting. The market proved to be a little more resilient than that. The $38.9 billion is only down 0.2% from 39 billion in 2019 and that was due to some strength and resiliency in, in some other in some areas that uh, outperformed what we had forecast back in July mm -hmm. so there was less of a pandemic uh, hit than um, 
and, and originally thought there might be, uh, but was kind of the reason for that. And then what about, let's discuss some of the other pandemic effects on the market. Like uh, it was a really big year for HPC Cloud, right? There was definitely a, a, a big uh, response in HPC Cloud, and that's as, as cloud kind of gets it two different ways. If, if people were delaying purchases or canceling purchases, they could use uh, cloud in order to make up for the gap in on-premise spending. But on the other hand, for the people who are accelerating or adding projects in, cloud could pick that up as well. So what we like to say was cloud does really well with uncertainty, and that's what the pandemic gave us a lot of was uncertainty. So we already had a double-digit growth rate forecast for cloud year over year. Then with the pandemic, we expected it to go well above that, and then it even beat our forecast. It was up nearly 80% year over year. And what about the different verticals? Um, how were how were vertical markets? I mean, what was up? What was down? Yeah, what we saw was we were expecting uh, solid uh, performance in the public sector areas and also biosciences, and that did happen and, in fact, came in even stronger than we had forecast. The government sector overall was up 10%, 10.1%. Bio and life sciences in the commercial side was up 12.1%. And that's all in direct response to HPC resources getting thrown at, uh, at, at battling the, the pandemic. Uh, on the other hand, of course, there were a lot of areas that were down um, across the different commercial segments, energy down, manufacturing down, retail down, uh, electronics, uh, entertainment, uh, generally all having... Uh, off years and, and commercial as a whole was therefore down over 3%, even though they had the strength in the biosciences area, which is a major commercial vertical market. Academia, we had thought was going to be a little more stable, but late in the year was really starting to get hit by the time we got into what would be the fall term for a lot of universities. And we had students not returning to campus. There were big negative economic consequences. We started seeing more universities canceling or delaying per purchases and overall academia was off about 5% year over year. And did you notice, um, what kind of patterns did you notice in the, the different geo regions that you looked at? There were, and mostly because right where we saw all of this get started in China, they also came out of it at least economically faster than other regions did. So overall, the economic effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, we didn't really see them across a full calendar year in China. The spending came back in and China was doing pretty well. And also Japan had the spending associated with the Fugaku supercomputer. So overall, Asia Pacific had solid growth, whereas the other GOs uh, were all losing. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. You can, you know, you can see the direct links between the, the economic systems and the the, the, the the spending and revenue, uh, not surprisingly. Um, and then you also had some interesting findings and observations with regard to the storage market, which I believe proved to be re resilient to some of the pandemic softening. Yeah, that was really something maybe we should have forecast, but didn't. We had expected that both servers and storage would be off at about the same magnitude as people delayed or canceled on-premise acquisitions. And uh, really, we saw that the storage was a lot more resilient than the servers, where the servers declined 7%. Storage was flat, up 0.3%. And that makes sense in retrospect that 
that uh, you still have data needs. And if you're going to keep operating, you need a place to store the data. And it makes sense looking at the numbers as they came in. All right, storage would be more resilient. We just didn't think of it when we put the forecast together. And, and that certainly helped uh, buoy the market to a certain extent to have a major component like storage that uh, while it didn't grow like we would have forecast, uh, it, it at least uh, it held the line in terms of spending year over year. And that contributed to the market being essentially flat uh, in 2020. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you did a little differently with this update is you did a six-year rolling forecast, I believe, to smooth out some of the COVID effects, right? So how, do, how does that work out? Right. We're still doing a five-year forecast to 2025 like we would normally do. But then as analysts, we tend to produce a five-year compound annual growth rate, which is what's the average growth rate if you start in this year and then roll it forward. But with 2020 being such an odd year, the five-year compound annual growth rates are essentially misleading because you have an anomalous year as a base. So yes, we did look at the five-year compound annual growth rates, but with the 2025 forecast, most of the uh, CAGRs or compound annual growth rates that we published were publishing as a six-year compound annual growth rate using 2019 as the base as sort of the last normal year. So it's still a five-year forecast, but we backed up the base year so that you don't look at compound annual growth rates based on a, a really weird year as the basis. Right, and and going forward, you want you'll want to get around that bump, right, um, before you go back to the five year. Yeah, it's a good point because this year in 2021, we'll still have an anomaly because you'll have a big rebound year where there will be a very high growth rate to something that was over and above the previous forecast because all the sales cycles start to come back in. So you'll go from an abnormally low year to an abnormally high year. By 2022, things should be settled down enough that that uh, those five-year compound annual growth rates will will look more normalized and we're, we're just going to have to give more information in the near term to make sure we're, we're conveying an accurate picture of the market but some of those trends in the five-year forecast are really interesting great um, did you want to tell us more about those well I do I think the biggest thing to say is that High performance computing is a stable market. It can take yeah. a short term hit from an economic effect, but it comes back. And the long term compound annual growth rate we're looking at is about a 7.5% compound annual growth rate using 2019 as the base out to 2025. It, that looks like a 9.1 compound annual growth rate if you use 2020 as the base. Um, there's going to be a rebound year to 2021 with very high growth year over year at 16.5%. 4%. The biggest thing is that cloud really just keeps growing at a, at a very big uh, double-digit growth rate. It has a, a, a six-year compound annual growth rate in the 30s year over year, and it's starting to show its dynamic effect on the rest of the market where we're now forecasting entry-level HPC clusters as flat, that growth kind of goes away and it's that all that growth at the lower end of the market is getting pumped into cloud instead. Mm -hmm. And looking out to the horizon, you've got a big top line of $55 billion for 2024 and $60 billion in 2025. 
How does uh, how does that leave the market size compared to what you were forecasting prior to the pandemic? Just wondering if there's a if there's a pandemic effect uh, will extend into the future or not? Yeah, really, the pandemic effect balances out by then, and you don't see an effect essentially in 2024, 2025 from the pandemic. By then, we're, we're back on to normalized growth. If anything, the 2024 number is a little higher than we had forecast before, and that's been due to the effects that we're seeing in budgets of AI, where AI is attracting more budgets into HPC workloads. Um, also, <laughs> cloud, you know, for the to the extent that it gets used, it also tends to be more expensive. So, you know, that's that's more expensive dollars, but it's dollars in the roadmap. So uh, I think that goes into it also. But really, the effects are in the long term are about the same. This is not a dramatically different picture in 2024, 2025 than we were painting before. If anything, the forecast a little higher. Great. Well, we have coverage of that forecast on HPC Wire, and you can also find a recording on your website, right? Intersect360.com slash presentations. You can register, see the video, download the slides, and our listeners, of course, can get full coverage of all of these stories on HPC Wire. And we're headed into ISC here, and we're going to see all of you on the other side of ISC. We are headed into ISC, and we will be back with a live podcast event next week as part of the ISC After Hours on July 2nd at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central Europe Time. You can find that on the ISC calendar as a special sponsored event, not the podcast, but the event sponsored by Delta. Technologies and AMD, and we're going to do a live this week in HPC podcast as part of that event. I am looking forward to ISC. I'm, I'm filling up my calendar with things I'm going to be doing between 4 and 9 a.m. just about every day next week. I am the moderator of the vendor panels as usual. That's going to be a lot of fun. My colleague Dan Olds is a judge on the student cluster competition. Anything you're looking forward to, Tiffany? I'm looking forward to the forward to the whole thing, and like you, I'm going to be getting up at 4 a.m. too on the West Coast, and I'm looking forward to uh, dissecting the top 500 list with you next Friday. It'll be fun. All right. Thanks a lot, Tiffany. Appreciate it. Looking forward to ISC next week and our special podcast. I'll talk to you then, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.